Good morning. This is John Halsman doing our latest Around the World in 20 Minutes as we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we all find ourselves on. And I'm here bright and early in the studio this morning. It's 9 o'clock here in Milan, a rainy day, because I have tons to do, and a bunch of you ask me about what's going on, so let me tell you. I am through nine of the 11 chapters for The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, the book that we're putting out thanks to a very generous grant by the Stand Together Alliance, the Koch Foundation, where we are going to do try to do nothing less than reinvigorate the Republican Party. And the mantra of our book is simple, though the object is hard. The mantra is, if we can change the Republican Party, we can change America. And if we can change America, we can change the world. And I'll get back to that later today in our podcast. And this is really the goal, is that the United States is now doesn't have a common foreign policy as it did during the Cold War, which is one of the reasons for its success, that standing behind containment doctrine for 70 years or actually closer to 50, um, is really a remarkable achievement. When people say that democracies can't have a common foreign policy, I wonder what planet they're living on. We did for 50 years through all kinds of problems, through McCarthyism and Vietnam and Watergate and the Vietnam War almost tearing us apart, the malaise of the Carter years and up into the triumphant time of Ronald Reagan, uh, the chapter of the book I'm working on right now, chapter 10 of the 11, we're almost there. We looked at the book cover this last week, which is really, really exciting. That's when a book kind of becomes real when you see the cover. So we're almost there. And I think it's the best work I've ever done. Um, George Harrison, I once said about uh, what was his favorite Beatles album, and he said he couldn't really tell the difference between Rubber Soul and Revolver, uh, that that was the best period. And I think I'm in the best period. I agree with Harrison. It, I think to dare more boldly, and this is a companion piece, The Last Best Hope, are the two best pieces of work in terms of the books that I've done, though I have a great deal of affection for the biography of Lawrence of Arabia and ethical realism certainly made a big statement and Godfather Doctrine sold very well. But I think that this is this is Revolver and to dare more boldly was probably Rubber Soul, that they're in that league. But this is more important because it's a political book, because it has an unabashedly political Outlook, because we've printed an awful lot of copies through White Fox Publishing, our wonderful publisher, and we're going to try to sell as many copies as possible to change the nature of the Republican Party and to rebind America around uh, a common foreign policy. We're trying to be George Cannon. And uh, the, the goal is Everest-like, but why be alive if you're not going to swing for the fences? So that's what I've been doing, but I wanted to do this one because next week we hit the road again. Uh, the first thing we do is go to San Francisco next week where I have a war game and a uh, keynote for Informa, uh, for Finnovate there. And uh, then I come home and we have a week to finish the notes and write up the Reagan chapter, which I've, I've enjoyed my three weeks with Dutch Reagan. And, and the first president, really, when I was conscious and going back and looking at what he did and how incredibly underrated he was, and I've enjoyed it a lot. And it's the fitting, really, end of the book before I hit the conclusion. And then we go to Washington for an incredibly important week where we go to a salon dinner for the Stand Together Alliance, where the people who've been paying for the book see what they bought, see what I've done, and we talk to their key donors. Um, I also play a war game for the John Quincy Adams Society, which is a great partner of the work that we do at my uh, political risk firm. 
And then I see absolutely everybody I can see in town. And really, it's the starting gun on selling the book. And I will probably do special podcasts along the way about the book and where we are on that and what this means and, and bit by bit why I think it's important, because I want to take you with me on this journey as we cross America selling this book and, and trying to sell a remarkably huge number of copies that White Fox has been supportive and that we, we, we have enough support to publish. Um, and if we sell them all, we will transcend the party. And that, that's what I'm waking up for. But before I get to all that, uh, I want to continue around with what we do in our community in the round, around the world in 20 minutes. Last week, we started a series on how the great powers view the world. And again, the, one of the great strengths of realism is the fact that you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes and not say, what would I do if I were Castro? But begin to think about what would Castro do? if he were Castro, putting together these broad historical forces and personal historical biography. When you meld them together, if you can do that, you can shed your skin and begin to understand how other people think. And this is the key to doing good analysis, whether you're in business, whether you're sitting at some sort of school board meeting, or whether you're doing what I do for a day job. I think it's all the same and why realism really is the answer as a secret philosophy to understanding the world. I remember in college when I first came upon realism, I felt like Indiana Jones. I've discovered this secret temple with one of the keys to life in it. And I couldn't believe nobody else could see this. And I still feel that way and wake up with wonder that I get to deal with realism every day. And I think we started well with the Chinese, the first superpower. So I thought we'd move on this week to talk about America, the other superpower. And I'm doing this off the cuff. Obviously, I, I know a fair bit about these, but I think you get a much more honest jazz improvisational feel. And I won't edit it. I don't. You just get it clean. And uh, we'll see how the jazz riff goes. And then we'll go on to the other great powers, Japan, India, the EU, Russia, and the Anglosphere. And look at how they see the world. And when we add all this together, we'll have a very good idea about how the world works and these contrasting views that make up the place that we live. So off we go. For America, despite all the doom and gloom and, and the talk of its, its perpetual decline, there's a graveyard of people who thought the United States was soft, weak, decadent, on, and on its way out. And in that graveyard, you'd find Kaiser Wilhelm II, you'd find the Habsburg Empire, the Ottoman Empire, you'd find Imperial Japan, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. And here we still stand. So obviously, there's some things the United States has done right and continues to do right. First and foremost is its private sector. And I say this living in Europe where almost nothing gets done, where growth of 1% has become the new normal, where it's certainly in relative decline, if not absolute decline, where there are absolutely no new companies on, on the horizon among the top 50 in the world, where it's living off its past laurels and is fast becoming Nothing more than a museum, as Hu Jintao rather brutally put it. And give America credit. It's not like that at all. It's dynamic. And 2% growth for a great power is about what you should have in America when things are calm, can just about manage that. It's a more dynamic economy. Yes, there's more income disparity. Yes, there are problems to more unfettered, unfettered capitalism. But we never talk about the upside. And the upside is it's dynamic, that it can grow at 2%. And if you can grow at 2%, you can still grow your way as an advanced industrial power. You can grow your way out of your problems. 
And that's not an unimportant advantage the United States has, that all this talk about China over, overtaking America easily has gone out the window. People have woken up to the fact, as we said last week, that demography is killing China. It's going to get old before it gets rich, that per capita, it's nowhere near to catching up to the United States. It's a middle-income country with an awful lot of people that's come out of poverty due to the genius of Deng Xiaoping. I'm not underdoing that. I think Deng is the most important person of the 20th century that most Westerners don't know much about. But let's not underdo the American accomplishment. Let's not underdo the economic success of Ronald Reagan, of the Bill Clinton era, of the Trump era. One has to give him his due. And the 2% growth remains a real situation that the United States is at the cutting edge of almost any industry in the world, has by far the most dynamic economy in the world for all the problems of capitalism. It also gets the benefits, the dynamism, the growth, the innovation. That's still all there. So the private sector is to America's good. Geostrategically, things are in America's favor at the moment um, as well. As we've said, there are two superpowers. The goal is who unites the rest of the world behind it over time based on sharing common interests with the rest of the world. And if you look at the great power map, China has Russia, that's it, a corrupt aging gas station with nuclear weapons, horrible demography, a massive alcohol problem for Russians drinking vodka. Anybody who's been there, you literally are going through the streets walking over people. Uh, this is a gigantic problem, a totally one crop economy. It's dependent entirely on the spot price of oil and natural gas, and that's their only ally at the great power level. On the other hand, the United States can look on the EU, Japan, um, and the Anglosphere as firmly committed allies, with India as a regional ally, united with the United States in fearing Chinese adventurism, even if it's neutral at the broader level. As I wrote this week in The Messenger, at the level below, things get a lot more dicey, where the developing world is studiously neutral. Nine of the ten most populous countries in the world are studiously neutral over Ukraine and don't want to pick sides between a China they trade with and an America that provides them with security. That's a big problem. The Kennedy rule is indeed in effect. But frankly, at the great power level, at the moment, things line up very nicely for the United States. And that alliance management sounds boring, incredibly important, would favor the world being dominated by the United States. The other advantage is the United States has a world that, that's already, we inherited this world from the genius of Reagan and Nixon moving to China and Eisenhower and Truman and Kennedy and FDR above all, we live in that world where I was born into a world that the United States is already dominant. To supplant that world, a revisionist world, requires fundamental change at the global level. And that hasn't happened yet. So we retain the advantage that I retained as my birthright, which is a Western-dominated, American-dominated world. And that is a gigantic advantage, just the stasis of already controlling everything. Let's ask the British Empire about that. For 400 years, they managed not to screw things up so badly that anybody challenged them and overtook them. And we have that advantage in the United States. So we have a dynamic free market on our side. We have the global configuration of power on our side. We already are the dominant force in the world and have set up institutions that suit us, like NATO, like the IMF and World Bank, uh, like the G7, which is meeting as we speak. All this is in our favor, and it's immensely important. And then we have two final advantages that, again, only a critic of America, but a, but a shrewd one like Charles de Gaulle, a realist who played very bad, who played very bad French cards very well, 
Um, I love De Gaulle. And he said, look, the Americans are so oblivious and stupid about the world that they don't realize that their two greatest advantages are English and the dollar. And they take them as self-evident. And that was true in 1967 when I was born. And it's more true now. Um, that's what's going on. And you see this all the time, that, that in terms of the dollar, it is more dominant, the dollar, at the moment. It controls 80% of all trade transactions, depending on how you measure that. At least 80 are controlled. That's the low number. There are a series of numbers. Are controlled by dollar, are done in dollars. It is overwhelmingly the dominant currency of the world, and nothing is about to supplant it. I love this idea that, oh, the dollar's in trouble because Congress spends money like drunken sailors. I would amend that statement to say the dollar someday will be in trouble and will fall. Currencies are not always dominant. At one point, the pound was dominant when the British dominated the world. If you go back the Dutch and the Gilder, you go back the Spanish. There's always a dominant power. It doesn't last forever. Yes, Congress is utterly profligate, spending money like water, having no idea what it's doing. I am top of the list to roll my eyes. We have two protectionist parties. It's idiotic and dangerous for the United States and its continued dominance. But to take over something, you've got to beat something with something. And there's nothing, nothing on the horizon to challenge the dollar. The Japanese yen is too small and their demography is crippling. The EU is a museum and it shows what an over-centralized, sclerotic, narcissistic, decadent society does. They want six-week holidays. They don't want to work harder. The French are afraid of raising the retirement age from 12 to 14 uh, and go crazy. You want a better sign of don't invest here? Try that. The EU will be lucky over time to grow at 1, 1.25%. This isn't, the EU isn't the answer to any question anybody has. So there's no euro domination. The Swiss franc is too small. And the, Japan, and, and the Chinese yuan is not convertible. If it's not fully convertible, it can't be the dominant world currency. And they don't want it to be fully convertible because then the Chinese Communist Party begin to lose control over their economy. And losing control is something that the Chinese Communist Party, since the days of the Cultural Revolution, cannot stomach. It would rather have control and not be the dominant currency than be the dominant currency and lose control. So for all these reasons, if you, it's like an Agatha Christie. If you look at all the suspects, none of them did it. And that leaves us with the dollar and the bumbling old Congress. Now, someday, unless America gets its act together, there will be a challenger and America will fall faster than it should because it's not gotten its act together. But you've got to beat something with something. And for the moment, the dollar is overwhelmingly dominant. And we see that in sanctions with Iran, where you can pretty much cut it off from the global economy, and where the United States can throw its weight around over the dollar in a way it can't even given its prodigious military might, which again is another advantage. It has overwhelmingly the best military as we see the Patriots knock out Russian hypersonic missiles. People, the kit the United States has in the Ukraine war has proven to be what I knew it was from working with the military for 30 years now, overwhelmingly professional and good at what they do. How we put them into use in a Clausewitzian way has been a disaster, but that they do their job better than anybody in the world is is unmistakable. And as dominant as we are militarily, the dollar is more dominant. There is less of a pure competitor. The Chinese are coming up the rails militarily, certainly in the Indo-Pacific where they can focus. But for all that, the dollar overwhelmingly is dominant. The military too is, is the best in the world by a long way. And then we have English. 
And this really does tie back to the British Empire. And it's just, again, as Bismarck said, why, why is the United States doing so well? And he said, God favors children and drunkards and fools in the United States, meaning it's lucky. And Bismarck was right. There is luck involved in life. It's not like Europeans think the, the primary determinant of how you do, which is uh, the sign. That's what losers say. And the Europeans cause, well, it's all bad luck. You know, it's not bad luck. Luck plays a role. Luck is 15 or 20 percent. 80 percent is skill and hard work. Um, I'm an American there. Come on now. But the United States is lucky that the power before the United States that ran the world spoke English. So the United States inherits that. As de Gaulle said, you know, the, an educated Frenchman knows five or six adjectives when you're negotiating a treaty. But a, a well-educated American or Englishman knows 20, 25 adjectives. You have an, I, I've seen this my whole life at conferences, which are always in English. The working language of commerce in the world is English. The working language of diplomacy is English. The working language of military wherewithal is English. And every elite in the world wants to speak English to you. This is an immense advantage that Americans don't even think about. And we inherited this from the British Empire. If you take your finger, and we always look at maps, and let's look at our map, and you start at South Africa and you trace the Indian Ocean Rim, the one thing you'll find in common with every elite that we go through, be it in South Africa, up into East Africa, up into Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, and over across the Bay of Bengal where you get to India, then the ASEAN countries down to Australia, throw in the Chinese to the north, what do you have in common? Their elite all speak English. They speak English. This is an immense, immense advantage. It means that you go in knowing five times the number of adjectives and adverbs, which is how English works. They're the words that spice up English. The actual structure is simple enough, but this gives the United States and the British, for that matter, and the Anglosphere, for that matter, an overwhelming advantage that it is the language of elites everywhere, of commerce, of business, of government, of diplomacy, of strategic wherewithal. So when you add all this up, the United States is overwhelmingly still the dominant power in the world. And yet, and yet, we're aware that America isn't what it was at the time of Ronald Reagan. We're aware that China is emerging as a pure superpower competitor to the United States. Now, that's to the credit of things China did under Deng in December 1978, when after the lunacy of the Cultural Revolution, he, re as, as a protege of Zhou Enlai, revamped Chinese society around capitalism and nationalism to old organic Chinese ingredients to come up with the bouillabaisse that powered it to superpower status. They deserve credit, but the U.S. also deserves blame. And foremost among the blame is the political sclerosis that is dividing the country. So literally nothing can get done anymore. When I was a kid and I worked in Washington at think tanks, we would go on junkets as kind of young leaders to go see the rest of the world. And they would take you to see, I remember going to Turkey on one of these, Morocco on one of these. And you'd go along with people like Fiona Hill, the former National Security Council um, member for a director who dealt with Russia, who's a really old friend of mine. Hi, Fiona, uh, who was an old St. Andrews classmate of mine. We were old friends going back to college. And people like Julie Smith, the ambassador to NATO, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, Phil Gordon, former assistant secretary of state, all these people. And Charlie Kupchin, who was high up in the NSC under Obama and is a CFR fellow. Um, we'd hang out together. I was a Republican. They were Democrats. 
Um, I would, they would make fun of me for saying I hated poor people. I would make fun of them as Democrats by saying they couldn't count and would spend money rather than think through a problem. And we would joke gently with each other, but we agreed on about 75% of the foreign policy agenda. And you saw this from having a common foreign policy. We agreed on containment doctrine. We agreed on the Truman-Eisenhower covenant that Truman and Eisenhower with containment said we're going to have a political confrontation with the Soviets, but we will to our left not appease Stalin as Henry Wallace and the far left of the Democratic Party wanted. We're not going to appease him. And the far right with people like Robert Taft and more importantly, Douglas MacArthur, we're not going to nuke the Chinese in Manchuria over Korea. So we're not going to have an overt military confrontation with great communist powers off soon to have nuclear weapons. And we're also not going to appease them. We're going to have a political competition with them, contain the areas they control, worry about the line between the free and the communist world. One thinks of Berlin first and foremost, but around the rest of the world, the Iron Curtain. We're going to back up our allies and wait for the contradictions in the Soviet system to cause its own demise, the Kennan theory. And it worked. It worked brilliantly. And we all believe this. And at this time, when the two parties agreed, it is devastatingly effective. When I, we would play good cop, bad cop with Europeans, when Julie Smith and I would go after them together. And she'd say, you can deal with me or you can deal with John. And they would, I would look at my fingernails and they would rather deal with her. And she'd say exactly what I would have said. This was a huge source of strength. And it isn't now. We don't meet with each other. When I go home to D.C., in a week and a half. I'll meet separately with the Republicans and the Democrats. They will still meet with me because I come from this golden age, but they won't meet with each other. And that is damaging, highly damaging for the country. Nothing is getting done as the Democratic Party, which Europeans refuse to admit, moves to the left of Trotsky with the squad, is totally embracing crazy solutions to things, spending money like water, and assuming that all Republicans are indeed the devil. And that means you can subvert, because Trump's a bad guy, you can subvert his constitutional rights. You can have the FBI mucking around, making political decisions it has no basis making. Read the Durham report. Don't read the New York Times version of the Durham report. A media totally in lockstep as a propaganda wing, the mainstream media of the Democratic Party. This is incredibly dangerous. And on the right, you have the Republicans moving to the far right. So nothing in the middle gets done, even though 65% of the country are still there. We have political sclerosis, which is grinding down America's ability to do things. And that is the greatest danger. The political risk to America is us. I'm not worried about the Chinese. I'm not worried about any of our enemies. I'm worried about us. Edward Gibbon, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. I'm worried about what's going on internally, domestically, socially, and above all, politically. And that is why we need to develop a common foreign policy again. And the end leads me back to the beginning. And that's why I'm writing The Last Best Hope, because I think this is our last best hope, to quote Lincoln, that America is the last best hope of Earth, is the Lincoln quote. And I, I wanted this book to be relentlessly positive in this moment of social and political danger, if the Republican Party can remember its roots. And in our book, we look at Alexander Hamilton and George Washington. There's a chapter on John Quincy Adams. There's a chapter on Seward, William Seward, Lincoln's adroit Secretary of State, one on William Bora, who kept us out of the League of Nations. Thank God we rewrite history there a bit. One on looking at Franklin Roosevelt as a realist, because he certainly was. Eisenhower and Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis, one crisis at a time, Bobby. 
We look at Nixon in China. And then we look last at Reagan and the power of rhetoric in America as a shining city on a hill. The power of example. To have that power of example, Republicans must rediscover the basic foreign policy tenets of the country, I would argue, but certainly of the Republican Party and conservatism, which is realism. If the Republican Party embraces realism moving forward, there will ultimately be a deal worked out with the Democrats along strongly realist lines. So America will move forward with a unified realist foreign policy. And all these advantages I mentioned get locked in and locked in for the next era. If we don't do that and we continue to tear ourselves apart politically, we're in for a world of hurt. This book is an attempt to bridge that gap, to remind the Republican Party of its glorious realist history by telling a series of stories and outlining the precepts that underlie realism in our own lived history, as it's practically been lived, not theoretical, but practically been lived. And if we can apply this to now and the future, well, then America will remain what it was and what it is and what it should be, the last best hope of Earth. That's the world from America's eyes and where we are today looking outward, the strengths and the weaknesses of the United States, where it is and where it needs to go. And that ties together what I'm doing with you and what I'm doing with the book. And I can't wait to talk to you about it as we go along. But have a wonderful weekend. Please do subscribe to the newsletter and please do give the $70 a year so we can keep doing these. So many of you have. And I love the time I spend with my community and getting to think aloud with you guys. And uh, look forward to seeing you in San Francisco next week. Take care and speak soon.